Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm welcoming back Marie Coots. I'm surprised that our first chat was over four years ago. Oh, really? Yes. And since then, each time you've come in and you're talking about something completely original and it's really good value and often Melbourne-linked. The title of Marie Coots' new book is Robin Boyd Architect. Now, you may have heard of Robin Boyd. There is even a Robin Boyd Foundation honouring his work in designing houses through the 60s and 70s. That's right. His home's in Walsh Street, South Yarra, and it's often open. And when you go through there, which I did at the launch of this book, it's all very much 60s, open, exposed, beams, lots of woodwork and brown shag carpet. absolutely a 60s icon. It's fabulous. It's very cool and easy to live in. There's a tweak in the title of your book. That's right, yes. Robin Boyd is a man, of course, the architect from Melbourne in the 60s, R-O-B-I-N-B-O-Y-D. But the Robin Boyd architect in my book is a little girl, little girl bird, and her name is R-O-B-Y-N-B-O-I-D, as in Tweety Boyd. Yeah. And um, and she loves to build nests. Well, of course, but she has to be a little girl then, That's doesn't right, she? Yes. Because she wants the perfect nest. Now, where is she building her nest originally in this Well, book? she lives in, on the ledge outside at the, at the university, National University, outside the uh, architecture building. Uh-huh. And every day she listens from while well, she sits up there in her nest, she listens to the architecture class inside. And from her perch, she can see spires and minarets and turrets and towers and things. And she really, really wants to be an architect. So, so she practices with nets building, archways right. and entrances, keystones and columns, buttresses and balconies, pedestals, patterns and plinths. plinths. At the back of the book, you give us a glossary mm. of even more of these architectural words. Yes, they're meant to be a bit confounding, mm. you know, parapets and... Um, plinths, for example, they're words that you really use your mouth to sound. And I remember when I was a kid reading um, Edward Lear's Nonsense, and there was a word in one of his nonsense poems which was cummerbund. In oh, fact, yes. he described it as a humorous cummerbund. And I had no idea what a cummerbund was. And you, I think kids, when they're curious and they hear something that's new, I know I did anyway, I bookmarked it. And when I, years later, learned what a cummerbund was, you have an aha moment and you join two synapses together and it's good. So I, ho- I hope to inspire a bit of curiosity in mm. kids and take them beyond, you know, the basic level, challenge them a little, you know. Well, and our Robin Boyd mm. is challenged also because she can do all of these, but, well, what's she, her problem? Well, <laughs> she's looking for the right-shaped nest for her egg. So she tries domes and spires and all kinds <laughs> of different architectural shapes, archways and curly cube gates and all kinds of things. But really, um, it's, a, it's a gentle way to uh, illustrate that form follows function in architecture and that you build the structure for the purpose that it's required for. So in the end, she does discover the ideal oh, shape. But before, before that, because she's a bird, yes. she can fly around the world looking at other architecture. Yes. Some of these are instantly recognisable. You know, there's the Sydney Opera House and the Chrysler yeah. Building and the Eiffel Tower. 
How did you pick the other ones? Well, I wanted some Australian. I always have Australian icons in my book, usually always Melbourne, of course, and then some other Australians. So I put the Sydney Tower in there as well and the Eureka Tower. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the others are my favourites. The Chrysler Building is one of my big favourites because I love Art Deco. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very hard for me not to put the Manchester Unity Building in this book, but I put it in every (laughs) single book that I do. I managed to find a way to squeeze it in. Now, of course, when we're talking about these Mm. these, books, Uh, piece, these structures, yes. so many of them have straight foundations and lines yes. and planes of yes. uh, on their walls. Yes. And, of course, <laughs> Robin Boyd and you have mm. to create all of these in sticks. That's right. So um, usually I draw by hand for when you go to Melbourne, for example, that's all hand-drawn. And some other books I draw... Uh, into my computer just using my mouse and I've kind of always enjoyed that it's quite raw and rough and it feels a bit like collage I overlay shapes like collage you know but I knew that for this one and for its partner predecessor book Andy Webb the artist that was cobwebs Mm. that I would need to get a stylus I've resisted a stylus for I don't know how many Ah. years I can't tell you how I just didn't want to get that um, much control I like it to feel a bit crazy and a bit fun but um, to do this many twigs and that many cobwebs, <laughs> I needed a stylus. So, yeah, you, 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 it's stroke on stroke on stroke over oh. and over and over. But, you know, birds have to do that with bits of wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, there's the play on words too. Egg words. We yes. have exciting, extraordinary, exceptional expert. And if Robin Boyd wrote a book of her discoveries, what would the title be? Great Egg Spectations. <laughs> oh, corny. <laughs> now, this book is part of the Clever Kids. That's What's right. That? Um, well, the first one in this series is uh, Andy Webb Artist. He's a spider who wants to be an artist. And so that, that is actually a tour. He lives in the National Gallery and he his dad wants him to be a web developer, but he always wanted to be an artist. So he, he wanders through the gallery tracing all the masterpieces with his web and learning how to draw nudes, landscapes, mm. portraits, abstract, surrealism, everything. We look at all the genres. We look at all the major names through art history that are in the gallery, of course, and we learn what's different about the line strokes and so forth. And we meet, you know, famous artworks by Frida Kahlo or... Jan Miro, etc., Picasso. Um, but, of course, that's, again, another struggle for this spider trying to work in colour and how he manages to pull that off. Mm. In the end, I won't give the game away. Oh, no, don't you dare. Um, but, yeah, I was trying to put books together that are about creative careers for kids because uh, often, you know, kids' books are fun and there's a lot of fun books out there. Um, but I, I like to put a challenge in my book and expose kids to creative careers early. I don't see why you can't do it as early as possible and um, it's important to get that whole observation noticing um, uh, impact going on in kids lives early so that they look at things that's what I'm doing with the typography so they mm. look at things and think about the shapes of things and you know they can they can take it all in I think they're just sponges but if we don't give them something that's meaty yeah. then they'll just you know slide back one of the quotes the from clever kids mm. is it must not dumb down the reading reading process. No. And that's exactly what you've done here, yeah. which is great. But you mentioned topography. Mm. And I've got to say, congratulations. Thank Spellbound. you. Spellbound. Now, Spellbound, Making Pictures with the ABC, won the Bologna Award, or that's a special right. mention yes. in the Bologna's. I'm very which, thrilled. you know, the if Bologna anybody. Ragazzi, yes. Oh, that's And a it's the big... first time an Aussie's won it in 10 years since Sean Tan won it for his oh, book. Yeah. Oh. So um, I was thrilled about that. And. Um, 
Yes, the typography, well, that's again, that's all about noticing shapes and, and learning about the rhythms and the themes of graphic design, which mm. are encapsulated in typography in a way that's just very pure. Well, I thought it was interesting too that another one of your typography books, Alphabet City Zoo, won an award in South Korea, which uses a completely different... That's right, that's right. The South Koreans are really interesting. They're big, like the Italians, big on children's literature, really big. And and they've put um, a centre together on an island called Nami Island, which is devoted to children's literature. Oh. It's just devoted. This family, it's one family actually, Jan, who funds it and manages it. So I think there's a few generations involved. And they've donated all this money to this centre and they run this award, I think it's every two years actually, globally. And um, there was only two from Australia, uh, oh. a lovely girl in Sydney and me. Oh, yeah. there you go. So that was that was terrific. But oh. it's, you know, it's 100 and something countries. So it Look, it, it is amazing because what you've done here is um, offered kids that creative ability to look at things mm-hmm. you know and of course there's also your adult books but let's concentrate on you on the kids too because yep. you're doing something just especially for kids and any listeners out there this would make ideal christmas presents with <laughs> but um what are you doing at fed square uh, Fed Square, um, Clever Kids, and uh, I'll be there with Clever Kids on our stand. Um, it's a Fed Square book and design fair on, I think it's the 17th Sunday mm. of December. And so there'll be lots and lots and lots and lots of stallholders there, but we'll be there with our Clever Kids um, goodies. And But before that, oh no, after that, in January at the M Pavilion, um, I'll be there doing a Robin Boyd Architect now book reading. Now, the M Pavilion. Yes, you better yes. explain a bit about that. Well, the M Pavilion is a temporary um, architectural essay, if you like, <laughs> and it's it's given to a different architect each year. They put together an ephemeral kind of structure opposite the you know the the, the, the water wall of the National Gallery in the gardens there, just near where the, the, the discus so, throwers throwing his. Yeah, the architect has to have a, a roof. It has to be sort of a little bit weatherproof, but mm. it has to also not have has to be fully open. enclosed. Yeah. Yes. There is a specific brief to it, which I'm not quite sure of all the detail of. But what they do then, once each structure is completed, they fill a little program of events there. So they have music and drama and poetry and reading and all sorts of things goes on there. And so in January, I'll do a kids session with Robin Boyd Architect and you know, read to the kids and talk to them about architecture and have some fun. Now, I'm going to do a plug for this. Not often do I do a plug for a shop, but if ever you need tourist tourist stuff from Melbourne, where's the shop? It's called Melbourne Style and it's sort of our design headquarters. So it's an art gallery and a shop and it's um, it's where we basically work from we base all our creative endeavor there so the books are all there and the artworks are there and prints and so on and the creativity started and it's all back about in, melbourne yeah, yeah yeah like um 1994 spring racing carnival mm. what did you design i designed the melbourne cup and the melbourne saucer with <laughs> people thought i was just so corny but we've been selling them ever since <laughs> yeah no they're, they're they're very chic they're black and white and you know they're they're lovely but yeah. we do lots of other things Oh, the Book of Melbourne. How's mm. that's uh, the Melbourne book? It's called Melbourne yeah. Book: A History of Now. It's in its fourth edition, and it's yeah. three hundred and sixty-eight pages of everything you ever wanted to know about Melbourne. And it's just won so many awards too. That yeah, book that's, too. it's been oh. a terrific, one. and it's fantastic. Okay, so I have been speaking with Marie Coote about her book Robin Boyd. 
architect, Robin Boyd, <laughs> and which is just a, a visual delight. I and know. the Boyd Foundation was so great about <sighs> it because I took it to them, completed and said, I've done this. I hope you don't mind. And they said, no, we love it. We want to fold it into our program. So mm. it was terrific. They've and been fantastic. Mesh with Andy Webb, the yes. artist. Yes. Fabulous gifts for kids, for stimulating Christmas presents or birthday presents or just reading presents. Marie Kurt, thank you very thank much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jan. I've been sitting here thinking of architectural words. A fenestrated rampart with a floating buttress. Very good. That's <laughs> flying buttress. Flying, flying. That's it. That's what I was trying to think of. Fenestrated flying. means windows. Yeah. yeah so. All sorts of things. I think you're better at a humorous cummerbund. <laughs> <laughs> would would a cummerbund go around my waist at the moment? Anyway, here is my interview with Jock Sarong. Politics and crime. One could well say these words are synonymous, but my guest today has combined the two in his novel On the Java Ridge. So, Jock Sarong, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Now, your love of the sea is again evident. If I can read, Rushing under her, the water surface became a transparent lens, the coral heads clearly visible and rising as if to break the surface. She knew they were deeper than they looked. If she held her nerve, she'd pass safely over them. Coloured stripes between the corals resolved themselves into reef fish pulled helplessly around by the powerful suction of the wave. The board accelerated silently as she angles downwards into the bottom turn. She banked onto the inside rail and felt the fin grip tight into the foot of the wave. From here, she could see only the great blue wall before her and the wide expanse of the sunlit ocean everywhere else, dotted with the upturned heads of the other surfers. Now, you've obviously been surfing in Indonesia, if we go by the setting of this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Indonesian surfing, you know, it's something that Australians do by way of almost a pilgrimage. And it is such a different world culturally and, and in every other way, and, and particularly the reef environment to what we experience here. But now these surfers are out on a boat called the Java Ridge. And the characters on board this boat are a sort of microcosm of Australian society. We have cousins Tim and Carl, Tim's girlfriend Leah, doctor and son Neil and Luke, photographer Fraggle, and the skipper is a first-generation Australian, is Inatoli. And let's not forget the Indonesian crew, Sanusi and Raja. So a microcosm, deliberate construct? Yeah, it is both a construct and probably a reality. The times that I've been on these charter boats in Indonesia, it's what you find is that you're thrown in amongst strangers. And they do come from a whole range of backgrounds. And there are people who obsessively go on their two or three trips a year. There are people who've been saving for five or six years to do it. A range of socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, often different nationalities. And so you find you're in this little, as you say, a microcosm. It's hot and people hurt themselves and it gets monotonous at times. Um, and it's interesting how that phrase tempers and brings out personalities. But it's also, in many ways, a world where people are carefree and they have the privilege of being able to do such things. Yes, and that's what points up the difference between the Java Ridge and the Takalar, which is the asylum seeker boat in the story. One boat represents total indulgence and the other boat represents total desperation. Mm. But in many ways, uh, the Java Ridge itself, called a Fenisi, hand-built in Sulawesi, they build those without modern technology. Yeah, and, and the, the trend at the moment among these charter companies is to have the boats built up in Sulawesi by the traditional methods and from the outside they look like an authentic 
Indonesian fishing boat. And then on the inside, you build in the mod cons that Western tourists demand. So part of what goes on in the story is the, the easy confusion when you're talking about aerial surveillance between a luxury surf charter that looks like an Indonesian fishing boat and one that actually is. But we've got the situation back home. There's the political world of core resolve and Cassius Calvert MP. It seems there's been, in some ways, an abrogation of political responsibility, some outsourcing taking place of the prime function of government. Core resolve? Yeah, that was me thinking about what I see just as an ordinary person observing the media, that we have been so willing to let government hand out important social justice responsibilities to corporations who then have the ability to hide behind commercial inconfidence. And when I wrote the book, I was trying to think of the specific examples that were sort of under my skin. But then around the time the first draft was done, we had the Don Dale situation, which illustrates it perfectly, that because it happens behind a cloak of corporate secrecy, A, the wider populace is not that worried about it, and these excesses are allowed to occur. I mean, we had sovereign borders, which is a way of masking what is taking place, avoiding scrutiny and accountability. And increasingly elaborate legal gymnastics to justify these positions. The idea of excising territories and yet still claiming them in a geographic sense is a nonsense. I mean, governments are not wanting to make decisions or cannot make decisions about the human condition. Yes, and what Cassius encounters as a new Minister for Immigration is he suddenly understands that he's required both to understand what's going on, what Core Resolve are doing on his behalf, but equally to have the ability to deny it plausibly if he needs to. And he's stuck between the two positions. Do politicians simply have to get rid of any sort of social feeling in the decisions that they make. Well, it always used to fascinate me years ago when Philip Ruddock used to wear his amnesty badge. That was a sort of a little signpost to, is he trying to tell us that there's a human being in there somewhere? And when I wrote the character of Cassius, I thought about how easy it would be to make him into an ogre because it's the easiest thing in the world to depict an immigration minister as an ogre. They do themselves so much assistance with that task every day. It's more difficult and I think more interesting to make an immigration minister who has a public face which looks ruthless but inside is completely racked with turmoil about what he's being asked to do. Not just what he's been asked to do but he's very human because he's got a failed marriage, he's got a son that he's got to look after which shows he has a human side as well. So we've got the surfers on the Java Ridge We've got the political situation and a looming election. It's a week away, and this adds intensity to the novel. We have the boatload of asylum seekers on the tackler, desperate, seasick victims. They're suffering the circumstances of fate, and it's only by pure chance that these two worlds are brought together. Izzy didn't want to stop at the island where they ended up, but one of the tourists jumped overboard and thought, I'm going for a surf. And then the asylum seeker boat basically capsizes or breaks up on the reef and there's disaster. Yes, what I was driving at there was that if you look at the geography of where these Australian surf tour operators take people 
And then you look at the geography of where asylum seekers have come from in the north to get to places like Ashmore. Those lines intersect. And it seemed to me it was a reasonable idea that eventually two such boats would meet. And what I've done with that particular island, which is called Dana, which does exist, it's just over near Sumba, is that the Australians have surfed on the reef, as you said, during the afternoon. And that's depicted as this beautiful sort of blue ocean experience. The storm comes in on nightfall and the asylum seekers then hit the same reef. And it's a way of contrasting the way Australians feel about the ocean, which is it's just this pleasure and this recreation, and the way an asylum seeker, particularly from a landlocked country, might feel about exactly the same ocean and the same reef. But it also brings up this notion of chance and circumstance and what you do when you find people in need. Yes, and that people's fixed positions about politics, about asylum seekers, whatever it might be, really don't matter a damn once you're thrown into that situation and you've got to be pragmatic. So we then have chaos with injuries and all sorts of things. We have Carl going off surfing. If you want to be Mother Teresa and rescue the refos, that's your business. So So we need to account for our own behaviour in such circumstances. But then, of course, this is mirrored against what the government does or doesn't do in a similar circumstance. But you also have this lovely scene then between Cassius and his son, Rory, about the issue of asylum seekers. Mum says you've got the election this weekend. Yep. Are you going to win? Cassius lowered the phone, tried to conceal his reluctance with a hard smile. We should be okay. I saw you on the telly yesterday. Yeah? What was it about? Cassius knew what it was about. Rory looked puzzled. Well, you said that the boat people... that the boat people from Indonesia would be on their own from now on. He screwed up his face. Is that right? Sort of. I said that the government won't be getting involved anymore. So what happens if one of the boats comes? Rory was stretching apart a handful of cheese. There's a special company whose job it is to go and deal with it. What do they do? Cassius imagined himself telling Rory what they do, the boy repeating it to Monica later on, and the conversation finding its way via a kid in the schoolyard into the media. I don't know, they deal with it. They're kind of experts at doing stuff like that. Cassius made the smile again. He remembered his own parents doing it when a topic was too complex for children and needed to be closed, but the kid wasn't letting go. So why is there a company that gets rid of the boat people? Are they bad for Australia? No. Well, they can be in some situations. Mostly they're just desperate. He immediately regretted the choice of word, knowing he'd opened up another avenue. If they're desperate, why doesn't the government help them? I mean, out of the mouths of babes. There's two small children in the book. One is Rory, who's the minister's son, and the other is Roya, who's an asylum seeker's daughter and an asylum seeker herself. And both of those children occupy a lot of that space explaining and exploring the problems and they do it from different perspectives. Roya can't understand what is at the other end of her journey. Rory, a little kid who lives in Sydney and occasionally visits Canberra and has a comfortable Australian life, can't understand why there is this problem. So both of them are perplexed but from completely opposite ends of the problem. And the tension escalates, therefore, the captain of the asylum seeker boat basically commandeers the Java Ridge to prevent it from going to Australia to avoid being arrested. Now, he comes across as an arch bastard. He's holding a knife to Roya's throat. And yet you don't totally condemn Ali Hassan. And what we get then is Roya asking Ali Hassan a couple of questions. 
Where do you come from? she asked him. Since she'd been travelling, she'd found that people liked to discuss their home, but Ali Hassan weighed the question, searched it for traps. Baghdad, he said eventually. Shia, like you. But my family were communists. Both my parents, teachers, professors at the university. He took his eyes off the sea, looked directly at her. You understand that word, university? She nodded. I was going to go to the university too, but then Bathurst, they come and take my parents from the house when I am 16. He was choosing his words carefully so she could keep up. They were more terrible for their simplicity. They tortured them. Too much, they could not take it. Some soldiers come to the house and tell me to come and get the bodies or they throw them out. The afternoon cooled outside. The breeze slipped through the open cabin door. They arrest me three times, beat me up, make me sign papers because my neighbours are telling stories. See? He lifted his lips and pulled it back to reveal the dark cavity beneath his pink gum. Hit me in the mouth with rifle, teeth gone. Then I escaped the mountains, so cold for a long time, nothing to eat. He patted his stomach to demonstrate, as though he was talking to someone much younger. Walking, tracks, more walking, Kurdistan, Turkey, four years in Turkey, very bad. You have travelled a long time, she said. You are travelled too, he replied. Most people are travel. He swept an arm at the smothering dusk outside. Most people want going somewhere. Not many people already are home. So in... Some ways, despite the atrocities, there's a human side to him as well. Yeah, and it's that last line that is the telltale that not many people already are home. It seems to me that we're persuaded of an idea that most of the world is settled in its place and has its mortgage and its job, and that there's a handful of desperate, dangerous people wandering around causing trouble, when in fact the situation is rapidly inverting itself and there are a huge number of human beings who have lost the concept of home, and very few of us that are sitting on this privileged pile saying, I'm already there. The thing about Ali Hassan started with um, that line that is used by the government a lot, I think in fact it was the Labor government who started it, about smashing the, the people's smugglers' business model, and the immediate supposition that anybody involved in that trade must be an organised criminal. It's true in, in a wide variety of instances. It's also not quite true. And as we so often see, the reduction of any complex problem to a simple slogan for election purposes really does a lot of harm because it conceals the subtleties. Ali Hassan is the embodiment of exactly that. He's a guy with a whole lot of complex motivations um, who is neither good nor bad. You also then pick up on that thread with Roya in all the lonely passages of her long journey. Roya must have pondered the possibilities for her father, that he had been taken and tortured, shot and pushed into a ditch, or that her brother had been forced into military service and simply never come home, and the unspeakable burden she'd had to assume in the engine room. Why, Izzy asked herself, why did this lovely child have to carry it all? That notion of a child and what she's been through and the desperation... Exactly right. The fight in the engine room embodies the idea that so often in refugee situations, children are asked to assume burdens that are not theirs. Violence, deceit, desperation, all sorts of things. Which brings us to the ultimate outcome, which we can't discuss because I think the reader needs to look at that for themselves. But there is a question of the plausibility of action and how far we could allow our imaginations to go with what could possibly happen. Yeah, well, I think we're encouraged not to use our imaginations. Part of the reason why asylum seekers are dehumanised 
every day in political discourse is so that our imagination is not sparked by what's going on. The situation on that boat only becomes desperate for Cassius, the minister, when he starts to think, hang on, I think these are Australians, not asylum seekers. What do you want the reader to go away thinking at the end of this novel? I want the reader to activate their imagination and their empathy about what does happen and what we're not being told and to ask themselves, okay, if I accept this policy or that policy, am I willing to embrace the entire human consequences of that? The book does address a very current and pertinent political issue, which sort of crosses the boundaries of, is it crime fiction, or how would you describe it? I've given up trying to define crime. There's a lot of crimes going on in this book. (laughs) Whether anyone will call it crime is another matter. Well, it's the politicians that are the biggest criminals, basically. In the end, yes, and the corporation. So I've been talking to Jock Sarong. The book is On the Java Ridge, and it's a text publishing release. So, Jock, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks, David. Well, there you have it, Jan. That was my interview with Jock Sarong. Oh, I think it's wonderful that we can get such a variety well, of from, authors. From in, picture in... books to <laughs> asylum seekers and all sorts of... We've had Miles Franklin winners. And we have, Alex Miller and AC Patrick just yeah. recently. So, yeah, it's it's good. It keeps us busy. It, it keeps does. us reading. So, so it's I hope important it, thing. we also keep our listeners entertained. We have... Well, let's hope so. They can ring in and tell us if they want to. 